in the Gospel of John and uh, we're going to uh, take the next few weeks uh, working our way through the passage that Mark's just read, uh, chapter 1 verses 1 to 18 leading up to, uh, to Christmas and then in the new year uh, we'll continue our way through the Gospel of John uh, culminating with the final chapters of John at Easter time. So we'll hear of the crucifixion and the resurrection at that time. Uh, We're not going to hear every single passage of John here on Sunday morning because there's uh, 21 chapters in John and uh, we haven't got 21 weeks uh, or or more to go through that. But the bits that we don't cover here on Sunday morning we'll be covering at Friday feed when we resume in the new year. So if you're here Sunday morning and Friday night uh, you'll you'll get the whole Gospel of John over that period of time. So each each week in the coming weeks, we're, we're only going to be focusing in on just a, a few verses from John chapter 1. And this morning, it's just those first three verses. John starts his Gospel with the same words which the Bible starts in the beginning, the first words of Genesis 1.1. Each of the Gospels has a different point of beginning in their account of Jesus and their starting point ties in with what they want to accomplish through their Gospel. So Mark begins with the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he starts with his account of John the Baptist announcing the arrival of the adult Jesus uh, at the start of his public ministry as he was baptising. He said, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. We heard a bit of that from John's Gospel as well. So Mark's Gospel has throughout it, a series of people declaring who Jesus is. And it culminates with the centurion at the cross declaring, truly, this man was the Son of God. So as Mark opens, he also closes. Luke, Luke goes back further. He goes back to Jesus' conception and says, inasmuch as I have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. He starts with the account then of the very first eyewitnesses, Zechariah and Elizabeth, the parents of John the Baptist, They're told that their child would prepare the way for the Messiah, followed by Mary and Joseph at Jesus' conception. And there's angels, there's shepherds, there's Simeon, there's Anna at the time of his birth. There's the teachers in the temple when he's aged 12. Right through then to the women who were the witnesses of his empty tomb. Then the two disciples on the road to Emmaus and then the rest of the disciples in Jerusalem and Luke's Gospel culminates 
with the Jesus' words, you are witnesses of these things. Matthew. Matthew starts with the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He doesn't use the word beginning, he uses this different word genealogy and he takes us back even further than Luke to show us Jesus' human origins in David and Abraham, that their offspring would be the king who would rule the nations. Then Matthew finishes his gospel with Jesus affirming his identity as the son of David, who has all authority in heaven and earth, and as the son of Abraham, who sends his disciples to take the blessing of the gospel to all nations. Well, John takes us back even earlier than David or Abraham, earlier than any of the gospel writers. For him, the beginning of the account of Jesus is right back in eternity, even before the creation of the world. The act of creation isn't actually mentioned until verse 3. So John first wants us to ponder the identity of Jesus before we ponder his actions. John makes it very clear why he wrote his Gospel in chapter 20. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Many people, when asked who they think Jesus is, will automatically refer to the things that he did. They'll say he was a teacher, he was a miracle worker, he was a prophet who spoke God's words. What John wants us to see in his Gospel is that all of the things that Jesus did are signs pointing us to his identity as the Christ, the Son of God. See how it's through believing by having faith in who he is that we receive life in his name, his identity. If you speak to anyone from the various cults, uh, our friends from the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Latter-day Saints or the Muslim religion, They'll all largely agree with us on what Jesus did. But if you drill down on who Jesus is, you'll find that the Jesus that they believe in is a very different one to what we believe and what the Bible says about him. What we believe about Jesus, his identity, is of utmost importance because if our faith is going to be more than just an intellectual knowledge, and actually be faith in him as a person, we need to make sure we know who he is. If I tell you that in my home there lives three women, it's important that you know who they are because one is my wife, one is my daughter and one is my dog. Uh, If you don't know which is which, then 
uh, you can ask me later. Clearly, you need to know more than just the names so you don't get the three confused. Well, so it is with Jesus. Just because someone or some church says we love Jesus or we believe in Jesus, it doesn't mean they actually know who the real Jesus is. So getting our facts about Jesus does matter. It's not just boring theology, it's not intellectualism, it's actually honouring him by making sure that we know him well. So what John does in these opening verses of his Gospel is very clever. Each statement he makes is like an artist who creates an image by laying down successive layers and it's only when all the layers are in place that we can see the full picture. Well, the first layer is, in the beginning was the Word, taking us back before the beginning of creation itself. Genesis 1.3 tells us that all things were created by God speaking. Let there be. And Hebrews tells us that it is by faith that we believe that the universe was created by the word of God. But this tells us that the moment of creation wasn't the first time that God spoke. Before all things were created, there was the word. Now, Greek philosophers spoke of what they called the logos, the word here in the Greek, the word. For them, logos meant the underlying principle that's underneath, behind everything that exists, uh, the, the principle that gives the world a sense of order, enabling us to have things like logic, logos, logic and reason. They'd sometimes call the logos God, but they didn't mean it in a personal sense. The famous philosopher Aristotle, he used logos to describe how a speaker convinces us of something by using reason. For a Greek orator, logos means a word, a message that's spoken, not just the word on the page, but the the communication with all of the meaning and the ideas that are embedded in the words. Now, John may have known that, but he's not using this word logos in a Greek philosophical way here. He's using it in a biblical way. He wants us to recall those opening words of the Bible in the beginning. Was there anything else that existed before creation? Will we rightly answer, yes, God, because God is eternal, without beginning or end, he's not bound by time or space? John's telling us that in the beginning, when there was God, there was also the Word. The Word didn't begin at a point in time. The Word has the same nature as God, whose name is I am who I am. That's the first layer. The second layer is 
and the word was with God. Some people might hear that first phrase, in the beginning was the word, and think it's the answer to the question that a lot of people ask, if God is the creator of all things, then who made God? As if there must have been something before God that caused God to be. And often it's asked by sceptics who think this question disproves God because something existed without a cause that doesn't fit in with scientific principles. That's much better. Better remember to put my glasses on. And so, they say, believing in God as creator of the universe is irrational. But what's the alternative that secular science gives us? Well, before the universe, there was nothing. And then for no apparent reason, nothing suddenly exploded into something and formed the universe. So what makes more sense? That this universe was caused by nothing suddenly becoming something or that it was created from nothing by an eternal, all-powerful, all-wise God. See, both religion and atheism require faith to understand our origins. Religion's faith is in God. Atheism's faith is in nothing, but it's still faith. So, this isn't saying that the word was some kind of impersonal principle that caused God to exist because this word was with God. This word translated with means literally towards. It's most often used in the New Testament in the sense of describing people being with people in the sense of having a relationship with one another. So the word doesn't come before God to cause God or after God to be just a mere creature but has always been with God in direct relationship with God. So with this second layer we see not only that God has always been speaking but that God has always been a God of relationship. As 1 John 4.8 says, God is Love, since love is the purest, highest, holiest form of relating. He's the God who speaks and he's the God who loves. Speaking and loving are not just things he does, they're his very nature, they are who he is. When God speaks he doesn't just send out words that are abstract ideas like we do when we speak. His words are a communication of himself. We can utter millions of words that will tell people absolutely nothing about ourselves. But when God speaks, he's present to us. He's known by the one who hears. Now, up to this point, any Jew who's reading this would be nodding and thinking, Yep, that's a good way to understand Genesis 1.1. God's powerful word by which he created the universe is actually the living personal action of God himself. This God who speaks created the world 
to be in loving relationship with himself. But the third layer then drops a bombshell and the word was God. The word isn't merely something God does. It's not even just a self-giving revelation of himself. The word is God. Not just God-like, not just divine, personally God. As if to make the point, in the original Greek, the word order is actually different. It literally says, and God was the word. Now at this point, John's Jewish readers would have said, hang on, you can't say that. There's only one God, the true and only God, the God who says, I, I give my glory to, none other, to no other person, the God who says, you shall have no other gods besides me. This is blasphemy, they would say. And his Greek readers would have said, well, that's illogical. You talk about the logos and logic, but it doesn't sound log- it's not logical to say in one breath the word was with God, as if he's a separate being, and then in the next breath the word was God, as if he's the same being. It must be one or the other. The Greek would say it's foolishness. That's why Paul says the gospel is a stumbling block to Jews, offence to Jews, and foolishness. The Greeks. Well, the answer to the Jews' charge of blasphemy and to the Greeks' laughter and charge of foolishness is, of course, the doctrine of the Trinity. Yes, there is only one God, as the Jews confessed in the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And this one true God has eternally existed in three persons, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. The word of whom John is speaking is a title for the Son, who himself is truly God and has been with the Father and the Spirit from the beginning of time. So it's not blasphemy to call him God because it's not a claim that there are multiple gods and it's not illogical to say he is with God and God because God within himself is this loving community of three. The Trinity isn't a maths problem we have to solve. We can't expect that God is going to fit into our human categories in such a way that we're able to fully Understand or explain his nature because God is God and he's far beyond and above all of our human categories. The Athanasian Creed, written in the 300s, a universally accepted statement of, the, of Christian doctrine by all the churches, all denominations, says this is the Catholic or universal faith. We worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person, the person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit is one. 
their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. Now it goes on for another 51 lines, but you get the idea. What John writes here only makes sense when we believe and understand that God is triune. The word of whom he speaks is the Son, about whom we can both say that he is with God and is God. And to make sure we get that, John essentially repeats himself then in verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. This word, who is God, was in the beginning with God. We might say to John, well, you're just repeating yourself, to which you would say, yes, I know I am because I want to make sure you get this. The one about whom I'm writing in the Gospel, the one in whom I want you to believe and have life in his name, this is the one who is God, the Son, who was with the Father from the very beginning. So straight away, God, John gets rid of any false ideas that Jesus is just a man or just a prophet or just a teacher or even some kind of lesser God or angelic being. This is Christ. This is the Son of God. And if you say you believe in God, then you must believe in him because he is God. So at this point, John has only covered the first four words of the Bible, in the beginning God. And he's shown us how Jesus fits there and he now goes on to show us how he fits in the next three words created the heavens and the earth. It's three words in the Hebrew. Not only was the word God and with God in eternity, but as God he was intimately involved in the work of creation. All things were made through him, verse 3. We know that the word, the world was formed by the word of God. Now that we've seen that the word of God is the person of the Son, we can see how deeply and personal, personally relational creation must be. Creation isn't a mechanical thing. It's a highly relational act in which the Father, the Son and the Spirit were engaged in a conversation as they formed all things. If you ever try to imagine what it was like before God created the universe, don't have the image in your mind of God there all on his own, just hanging around in the emptiness and the darkness of nothing, with nothing to do. And so to stop being bored, he decided to create something. No, in the beginning there was love and joy and delight as the Father loved the Son in the joy of the Holy Spirit. And creation was, so to speak, an overflow of that love. So when God said, let there be light, it wasn't a magic spell uttered into the darkness, Harry Potter style. It was the Father's command, which the Son joyfully obeyed because he loves to do his Father's will and the Spirit joyfully worked to bring the work of the Father and Son to perfect completion. 
in all the ways that God works in the world. The Father is the originator. He gives the command. The Son is the mediator. He brings it into being. And the Spirit is the perfecter. He brings it all to completion. So that's why the Son is called the Word. Because whenever the Father speaks, the Son's always there, taking up the Father's command and delighting to do his will. So when you read Genesis 1, read it as a conversation between Father, Son and Spirit, unified in love to form a world specifically designed and fine-tuned to be the recipients of their love. When we think of it that way, it shouldn't surprise us then to hear Jesus say, Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, they have neither storehouses nor barn and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? Consider the lilies, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. God takes delight in birds and grass. He gives them beauty and value because they are the end product of this loving triune act of creation. But it goes even deeper. All things were made through him and without him was not made anything that was made. If you get your head around the double negative, you can see that he's saying, to paraphrase, out of everything that was made, none of it was made apart from him. John's language feels a little complex to us with that double negative, Uh, but I believe he's saying it in this way because he wants us to understand this phrase in light of something that Jesus says later in John's Gospel. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. We can understand then without him nothing was made that was made from Jesus' words there where he says, apart from me, same word in the Greek, apart from me, You can do nothing. He's saying much more, isn't he, than just you need me to be available to give you the power to do what you want to do or what you ask for. You see what the opposite to apart from me is. He says it eight times in this passage. Abide. We abide in him. He abides in us. His words abide in us and we abide in his love and in his Father's love. So to be without him 
then means not abiding in him or he in us. So if we take that thought then back to chapter 1 verse 3, we see that by making all things through him, the Father is designing by saying nothing is without him, all things are to be abiding in him and he in them. The Son has a unique relationship with the creation because the ultimate goal for creation is that it would not only be the dwelling place of human beings but the dwelling place of God as he dwells among his people. People today might talk about the earth being so finely tuned that it's the perfect environment for life and for human life and that's the evidence for an intelligent creator. So the earth's size, its distance from the sun, the makeup of the atmosphere, the abundance of water, all these factors that just make it perfect for us. And it's true, God did make this planet with all of its intricate ecosystems that all work perfectly together to sustain life. But that's not the point here. Creation isn't just about functionality. Life isn't just about biology. Creation is about a relationship between God and his creatures. All things were made through the sun, designed for the sun to abide in them. So when, as we will see in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, He wasn't stepping into an environment that felt new and strange to him, but into a creation, into flesh and bone that has been specifically, lovingly created to be the perfect setting for God to be in fellowship with humanity. All of creation was designed for this purpose, the Son of God becoming the Son of Man so that our fellowship with God might be just like the fellowship that exists between God the Father and God the Son. See what Jesus prays for us in John 17. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that's us, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. See how he prays that the unity between himself and the Father, they're in one another, may be the same kind of unity that we have both with Jesus and the Father in us. The Father made all three things through the Word, the Son, with the express aim that his creatures would be one with him in love. Every blade of grass, every stone, every river, every mountain, the clouds, the wind, the moon, the planets, the stars, every living creature in the sea and on the land and in the sky, everything that exists in this universe is designed and put in its place with this goal in mind. And creation is embedded with signs pointing to this purpose. That's why we can look at it and say, There must be an intelligent creator. It's full of signs pointing to the glory of God. 
Here's just one example that Jesus pointed out. Jesus said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now in John's Gospel, the glory of Jesus is most clearly manifested as he dies on the cross. And so his death is what he's referring to here. See how a seed is an illustration of Jesus' death and resurrection. And it's also, he goes on to point out, it's also a picture of us dying with Christ and being raised to new life in him. So every plant that has seeds is an evangelist. It's a parable that God has put into creation pointing us to the reality of when the word was made flesh and flesh that hung on a cross and was buried in a tomb and raised again to give us life. If the wonder of all of this doesn't grip your heart, then check your pulse to see if you're still alive. This is the truth of not just of who he is, this is the truth of who you are a creature made for fellowship with the Word who is God and was with God in the beginning. The Word through whom everything, including you, was made and has its being. As the Christmas season approaches, there's the risk of two responses that we might give. One is to get caught up in all the secular commercialism and all of the secular rituals that uh, we're required to abide by at Christmas, to get caught up in that and lose the sight of this wonder, the awe of Christ. The other risk is that we look cynically at the world's hypocrisy of celebrating something they don't understand or believe. Instead, we should allow this mind boggling, heart-enlarging wonder of who Jesus is capture our hearts. Charles Wesley put it this way, let earth and heaven combine, angels and men agree to praise in songs divine the incarnate deity. Our God contracted to a span. Span is the width of a hand. Our God, contracted to a span, incomprehensibly made man. Let's pray that this wonder will capture our hearts, enlarge our hearts and become contagious so that the way in which we celebrate the incarnation of the Word of God will make others wonder how we can have such hope and joy.